Thank you for listening to Life Church Podcast. For more information, go to lifechurchofcolumbia.org. Thank you, Jesus. Tonight, I want to deal with a concept called post-Pentecost. You know, we've done so much teaching and, and investing and, and leading into Pentecost. It's, it's kind of been, excuse me, it's kind of been this long uh, crescendo up until this past Sunday, which was the day, mm, wow, excuse me, I drank that water way too fast, which was the day of Pentecost. And, and, and those of you that got to be here Sunday, wow. Wow, the because of Pentecost, uh, me and uh, I think it was Cole we were talking about, we were both raised in church. I mean, we've been in church literally all our lives, and I personally have never in my lifetime heard anything on the because of Pentecost, of why this is and what this is, uh, and bringing such a balance to the idea that we're not just chasing emotional fanaticism. We have been empowered to become something, to do something. And so in this leading up to Pentecost, we did our journey through the cross to Easter, which was phenomenal. And this year, the Holy Spirit just led us right into journeying on to Pentecost. And Sunday was incredible. I I think it was even more than we realized happened Sunday that we will continue to just reap the fruits of uh, as this year goes on. I'm excited about that. And so in, in my mind, when I'm studying uh, and, and God just has us in something, you know, I'm always, I'm always preaching context. You have to see context before and after. And so after Sunday, I thought, what now? Like, like we did the whole journey and, and the crescendo Sunday, and it was so incredible. But what now? Because so much led up to Pentecost, but Pentecost wasn't the end of the thing. It was the beginning of a thing. It was, it may have been the end of what Jesus came to do in the season and he sat down. But as dad's been teaching, when he sat down, the church had to stand up. So what was the ending of one thing was the very beginning and the birth of a brand new thing. And so I believe when God began to say, behold, I do a new thing. And when he said, no eye has seen and no ear has heard, I believe he was prophesying about the moment where Jesus would take his seat and a new thing would be birthed that no one had seen yet. No one had heard yet. So that's what we have found ourselves in. So tonight I want to deal with a post-Pentecost era, which is what we live in now. And what does this look like? What did it look like for the early church when they were establishing this thing? What did this look like? So we're going to be in Acts chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. We're just going to hang out there tonight. I feel a very uh, pastoral anointing tonight. I want to just speak to us as a family. Uh, I don't think it's by accident that uh, our bus route went a little crazy and I didn't get back and prepared in time to set up live stream and all the things that sends it out to a lot more platforms. Uh, and I think it's specific because God is just looking to talk to Life Church family tonight, this core group, and just, just begin to establish some things for us as we move into a post-Pentecost uh, dispensation, we'll call it. So Acts chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 40 through 47, and then we're just going to come back and dive into all this, all right? Acts chapter 2, verse 40 says, And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. 
What's happening here is we've just had the encounter in the upper room. They come out. The people think they're drunk. Peter stands up and gives an incredible sermon. At the end, this is the very end of his sermon. This is where he's wrapping things up. So literally the church has just been born. 41, then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayer. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all, as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple, at the breaking of bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. I love that phrase. Praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. There's so many incredible, uh, seemingly contrasting statements in the early church in Acts. If you pay attention to what you're reading, it'll say, uh, fear came on all the people and no one dared join them, yet people were added to the church every day. So you have this wrestling match of, did they not join them or were people added daily? And then you have this incredible statement in verse 47 that said, praising God, having favor with all people. How do you have favor with all people and them persecute you until you're dead? You see, the, you see the, there's a friction in this revelation, and I think it's when we find these seemingly contradicting ideas or the places where God is trying to pull us into a revelation, pull us into something that's more than just a surface, oh, wow, they ate together and prayed together and, they, and it was good. No, there was so much happening in the establishment of the church right here. And I want to dive into this, and I want to deal with some fund, foundational elements that were used to steward and grow the first church. Uh, me and Dad were talking about this today on the way to Allah and back, and uh, we were talking about how in the upper room when Pentecost came, God comes and breathes a fire onto the church and ignites the first church. And then everything we see after that is their response to stewarding what Jesus ignited. It's, it's, it's the Old Testament principle we've been taught by Papa Dean for so long. You have to be able to establish it with an Old Testament uh, principle, an Old Testament type and shadow. And the Old Testament, God set the fire on the altar and required the priest to steward it. So if the flame went out, no one could blame God. They could only blame whoever was stewarding the fire. So this is actually the same thing that's happening in the New Testament church. God has shown up once again in his grace and started something that man could not start. He established something that man could not come up with it and then turns around and in favor and grace says, now I allow you the responsibility to steward something that would change the world. Steward something that would change a nation, that would turn a people upside down. And we're about to see the things that were fundamental elements they used to steward the church. I, like, I want to call these non-negotiables. These were things that no matter what was happening, they would not change. I don't believe they're written in a, uh, like a order of importance. I believe in the New Testament they are writing things so fast. The Holy Spirit is downloading things and they're, they're, he's laying out this is what's happening. Uh, but I do want to go through and see the importance of them. First one we see was the apostles' doctrine. 
It says, after all this happened, 3,000 people are, given to the, are born into the church, into the kingdom. And it says, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. First thing we see here that became a non-negotiable for them is the apostles' doctrine. I, I want to I take a moment just to prove to you how important it was to stick with the apostles' doctrine. When later on the church has grown and a lot has happened and there's several people in leadership and they're starting to establish a, 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 a well-working system. I hate to use the word system because they were brought out of a system. But if you pay attention, they start setting up deacons and elders and people in certain regions and pastors are coming up and all this is working. Well, they get into a certain place and Peter is over a certain group of people and in the certain group of people, he starts to slightly change a part of the apostles' doctrine by saying, uh, by going back to an old uh, Mosaic law idea when he's in front of a certain group of people. This is Peter. You get what I'm saying? The Peter we just read about. The Peter that was so close to Jesus. And Paul shows up and rebukes Peter in front of the people. Why? Because it wasn't in the apostles' doctrine. It had to stay within what Jesus had brought to the table. They had to, it was a non-negotiable. So the message we see Peter come out of the upper room and begin to preach on Jesus Christ. And then we hear Paul say, I choose to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. They had an understanding that this is the doctrine that is non-negotiable. This is what we're going to fight for, that Jesus Christ was crucified. Uh, one of the next things we see, I'm, I'm going to kind of roll through these. Uh, the next thing we see them list is fellowship, which is being together. They had meals together. They spent time together. Later on down, it even gives us a little better understanding. It says they went from house to house, breaking bread. They spent time with one another. In the first church, this was non-negotiable. This was a foundational element that no one could take from them. There was, there was nothing coming up as far as a resistance or persecution of the church that would make them consider not being together. It was an impossibility for them to not gather. Let me show you the extent of what this come to. When the first church is birthed onto the scene, they immediately, they immediately run into resistance and opposition that they hadn't known before. You have to pay very close, very close attention to the Bible because until Jesus is gone, the disciples themselves have not experienced this resistance. Notice, when the Pharisees come and do everything they do in the Gospels, none of it is directed toward the disciples. Nothing happened. As a matter of fact, if you, if you read and pay attention, there's one spot where the elders are saying, we got to do something about this. we got to end this. And one of the Pharisees speaks up and says, it's, if it's of God, <laughs> there's nothing you can do about it. And if it's not, the leader will be snuffed out and the people will disperse. In other words, we have one focus, and it's Jesus. We don't care what the disciples are doing because they're nobody at this point. Well, the minute they come out of the upper room, it shifts. And now all of a sudden, the opposition is not towards Jesus, it's towards them. Jesus has been removed from the picture, and now they step into a resistance that up until this point they didn't know yet. So this is what they're looking at. 
Something has been birthed now that's been prophesied for years that no one knew exactly what it was going to be, and it was the church. This thing has been birthed and established. The man who came and set it all up and taught them everything they know is gone now. He has filled them with his spirit and releases them out, and they have to figure it out. They have to take everything he taught them, everything he showed them, and begin to build the New Testament church without this. This didn't exist yet. They couldn't stop and run back to Matthew and say, oh, wait, what was that that was said? Or, or they couldn't run back and say, wait, what did Paul say about discipline in the church? And They didn't have none of that. They were solely relying on what they had been taught, the apostles' doctrine, and what they had been showed by example from the master himself, Jesus Christ. And when they do it, they do it under the greatest resistance that we have ever known. They, and, and what's crazy is if you, if you keep up with it, after every changing of, of leadership or, or Roman government or whatever it is, the resistance only grows. It just keeps getting worse until we read where they start killing Christians just because they think it makes people happy. So they're just finding Christians and killing them at this point just to try to make people happy. And in the middle of this, we see five things that are non-negotiables even when it considers costing them their life. One of those is, you can't talk me out of going to be with my brothers and sisters, even if it costs me my life. Because this is my life. You know why this is my life? Jesus never, never established anything apart from this being together. The first thing he does when he comes on the scene is not start performing miracles so they see how great he is. He starts building a family. The very first thing he starts doing is, I'll take you and I'll take you. And he starts building a family and he starts establishing something. The disciples were very, very, uh, very observant of how Jesus did things. So observant, they put the connection together that everything he's doing that's really awesome is because of the prayer he had last night. They put this together and they go up to Jesus and they don't say, teach me how to do miracles. Teach me how to teach. teach. No, they go to Jesus and say, teach us how to pray. Because we put two and two together. And when you go to the mountain at night, the dead get raised in the day. He didn't get, he didn't get to the dead and run to the mountain. Oh, come on now. I want to borrow some stuff from Bill Johnson right now. So they understood there was a concept. So the things we see them fighting for are things they seen work in Jesus' life. Guess what one of those things was? Fellowship. They, they gave their lives for it. They didn't just give their lives because they were the minister. They were the man of power for the hour. No, 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 it wasn't, it wasn't that. They would give their lives to hold on to these non-negotiables that they seen in the master. So I'm not here to tell you what we prefer as a denomination because what denominations prefer means nothing. The only thing that means anything was what worked in the life of the master. And the master designed the fellowship. He designed the being together. He designed the breaking of bread with one another. So when we decide that breaking bread with one another and fellowship isn't as important as something else, we have chosen to believe that the master picked a few things that weren't that important. 
He had three years to do all of his ministry, and he spent the majority of it with 12 men sitting around a fire. But Jesus, you're here to change the world. And he thought, yeah, and I'm going to do it by building this family. I'm going to do it by establishing some fundamentals that will become not, and you will so see how they work in my life, you'll give your life for them. The problem is we've connected all of what we know about fellowship to the jacked up things we've seen in churches past. And so we've deemed it not as important because it's usually just drama and it's this. But if you take it back to the master who mastered it and understood this is so important. I have 11 guys that will give their life for it. I have 11 guys that would sacrifice everything. These were non-negotiables. And then the persecution gets so strong. There's a guy, a, a ruler by the name of, is it Nero? Isn't he the one that came on right around that time and just became so bad? Isn't that how you say his name? He comes on and begins to persecute the church in such a way that they literally have to scatter from their homes and they run into the hills and build underground rooms and tunnels I recently watched a history documentary on these things, and they were so small, the guy showing you through them has to get on his hands and knees to crawl into them. And after crawling so far, it pops out into a little room. They built these things based on the importance of being together. They could have been Christians by themselves. I need, you, I need us to understand something. Because they weren't with each other, they could still be Christians but they seen something in the master that said, I'm not supposed to be apart from my brother and sister. So even if I have to spend the next 12 years digging a tunnel into a little four by four room that we will pack everybody we can into, that's how important it is that we remain together. So, so don't let crisis come in and make you start thinking, you know, we could just do this church thing separate and we could just start an online community and we could just do it from our own place. It's not the way the master did it. It's not about preference. It's about the way of the master. You know how much easier it would have been for Jesus to do what he had to do if he didn't have to drag around 12 knuckleheads to do it? Ask dad, he'd probably be an easier to pastor if he didn't have to drag around us five knuckleheads he's got with him. But Jesus was establishing a non-negotiable. Dad brought up the scripture Sunday, forsake not the assembling of yourselves. Why? Not because of denominational preference, because it was the way of our master. And it didn't matter what was happening they would find a way together. Do you know right now today, there's underground churches in China who are risking their lives to be together. Not to be saved. They're already saved and they're going to heaven. But they're risking their lives to do it together. And we have one crisis roll through. And now we got people literally throwing out new theology that says... Maybe gathering together is not a big a deal as we thought it was. If this, I told dad today, standing on a roof in Allah, I told dad today, I said, what scares me the most is how easy it was. How easy it was. Look, there's a virus and you could get sick. So you can't go to church for three months. You can go to the grocery store. You can go to a lot of other places, but you just can't go to church. You know what the church did? We sat down. We laid down. And we said, this must be the way. 
And, and now, because of it, churches are buying into online communities and all of this other stuff. But when you go back to the master, the master said, being with you is worth risking my life. Because it did something in them. They fought for whatever they seen him fight for. The problem is, dad said the worst thing you can do is do a thing and not really know why you're doing it. The problem is, a lot of our fight for fellowship has been because you thought your denomination said that's what you were supposed to do. So in the back of your mind, you didn't really want to do it, you just wanted to be denominationally correct. And so we use that to beat people over there. Oh, well, you didn't come Wednesday night. Yeah, I didn't, but you, you did, but you didn't want to be there. So what was the difference? You see what I'm saying? So because of our mindset of why we were doing it, but if we sing the way Jesus fought for it, don't you think it would change things a little bit? And now all of a sudden I would be approaching something from a totally different perspective. And like the early church, it would become non-negotiable. Non-negotiable. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Guess what was in their doctrine? Forsake not the assembling of yourselves. <laughs> I could hang out on this one all night. Three that he lists here in the breaking of bread. This is communion. One of their non-negotiables was communion. Why? Because he said, every time you do this, do this in remembrance of me. The more we studied in this and we begin to talk about it today too, it's almost as if every time these people would get together, which according to the scriptures, was a lot. <laughs> Every time they would get together, they would eat. I love these people. They lived a life of feasting. And they would have communion. I guess they figured, look, we already got bread, we already got wine, let's have communion. Let's, while we're here together, let's remember how good Jesus was. While we're here together, oh, remember? Remember how jacked up you were and then this dude showed up? Come on now. I can just see them sitting around the table and, and before it gets in that... We're not done, right? Because, Peter, I remember how jacked up you were, and we need to take a moment. And even if I have to take communion on your behalf, because I remember how messed up you were. So if I have to break the bread and say, I thank you for the blood that changed Michael. I thank you for the blood that changed Kamal. If we have to stop and remember, this is non-negotiable. When we get together, we're going to be thankful. We're going to remember what he did for us. We're going to remember what he did for us. They said no matter where we end up. So you have, a, you have a group of, of, of thousands, even possibly grown to millions, who are hiding in caves and dens. And in the middle of hiding, they're saying, hey, you want to take communion? Hey, you, uh, you got some wine? <laughs> I'm going to leave that one alone. Some of us are asking that too, but for a totally different reason. <laughs> they're hiding in caves. And whispering, and they're saying, yeah, but remember when he came? And remember when he was broken? And remember when his blood was poured out for us? Yeah, it would be easier to sneak back into the city and go back to my little job and not do all this. But I remember when he was broken. And I remember when his blood was poured out. And if it cost me my life, this is not negotiable. These are the fundamental elements that stewarded. Is that even a word? stewarded <laughs> and grew the first church. You want to know what's crazy? If you go through and look at this, I, I shared this little snip, snippet or whatever this is with the praise team last night. If you go through and look at this, none of them were 
how do I, how do I say this? They weren't beating people over the head with, you need to advance the kingdom and grow the church. What they were doing is they were remaining faithful to their fundamental elements and by nature, naturally, organically, it grew the church into what it became. So I feel like often we get a, we need to go out and grow the church mentality, but we do it apart from these non-negotiables. When Jesus established a culture that the disciples were so impacted by, they begin to build the church on them. Remember, they didn't have a book to go back to. All they could do was say, you know, I remember when Jesus taught us this. And I remember when Jesus said this. And I remember when Jesus fought for this. And they begin to, I can just see them going through and making a list and saying, man, that, that had to be so important. We, that, we, that's non-negotiable. Jesus was so about getting together, that's, that's non-negotiable. That's not get together? Are you crazy? <laughs> You, you didn't hang out with Jesus. He, he always wanted to be together. <laughs> I'm going to leave that one alone too. So I can just see the disciples in this moment where they have been asked to grow a church to establish this new kingdom. And they're having to do it based on what they remember about the master. And so I can just see them sitting and, 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 and you have to go into the scripture and see Peter and James and John and Luke and all these. They've got to be sitting around this table saying, all right, guys, it's on us now. He did everything he was supposed to do and now he has given it to us and what are we going to do with it? And with that kind of weight and responsibility, knowing that outside the door is the greatest persecution that they will ever experience and they start saying, you know what we're going to do? <laughs> We're going to make sure we stay steadfast to his doctrine. And we're going to make sure we get together. And we're going to make sure we keep communion going. And these are the things they start deciding, this is what's going to steward this. This is what's going to make this thing grow and become what it's intended to be. It's on us now. Next he lists prayer. Prayer was a non-negotiable. It was a non-negotiable because of what they'd seen the master do. I, I mentioned it earlier. The one thing they asked him to teach was how to pray. One, some of my favorite scriptures, I say that every time I preach. I love the Bible. In case y'all can't tell, like, I am obsessed with the Bible. It is the funnest thing I've ever read, and I like to read a lot. I love reading the Bible. And there's some really incredible scriptures, if, if, if you're paying attention, where it says late, late at night, maybe even early in the morning before daylight, Jesus sneaks out of the camp to go pray. And then it says one of the disciples notices and they sneak up behind him. I love this. They were so impacted that it says they snuck out there to watch him pray. Just to watch him pray. They knew something was happening in that moment that was unprecedented on the earth to this moment. And they were so enamored that after a couple of times, I just believe only one time got recorded. I can see them just all the time sneaking out and be like, all right, let's go, guys. He's praying. And they would just get close. And they would listen to him pray. And then they would watch him change the world. And they would listen to him pray. 
and they would watch him raise the dead. You feel that in here right now? They'd listen to him pray, and then they'd watch him forgive sins. And they'd listen to him pray, and they'd watch him heal the leper. And they begin to say, you know what? <laughs> this prayer thing is where it's at. This must be the key. This must be the key. The disciples run into a demonic experience that they cannot overpower. And they come to Jesus and say, why couldn't we cast out this demon? And Jesus says, this comes only by prayer and fasting. And then turns around and removes the demon without praying or fasting. <laughs> this is so good. This is, I'm, I'm going to take this from Bill Johnson. He did it in the moment. He said, you got to pray and fast. And then he did it without praying and fasting. You know why? He had already he, he prayed and fasted into a position. He didn't pray and fast for a result. Oh, my God. Jesus knew he was praying and fasting into a lifestyle. He knew the Father was too good to use prayer and fasting to manipulate his hand. But he also knew the importance of prayer and fasting that put him in position to be used by the Father's hand. So they begin to make a connection. And when they're in the New Testament and they're establishing the church, one thing they come to and say, you know what we're going to do? We're going to pray. We're going to pray. Because for one, we've seen the way Jesus did it. And two, those ten days we spent in the upper room turned out pretty well. They turned out so well, in fact, that this idea, not this idea, this lifestyle of prayer continues on so much that the disciples escape prison more times than anybody in the world based on people praying. Yeah. Do you realize almost every time in the early church one of them would get in prison, the church would pray and angels would show up and jerk them out of the prison? I'm thinking, these dudes. <laughs> What's crazy is there's one instance, if you pay attention, there's one instance, you know, we know the really famous one where he comes in and kicks Peter because Peter's just sleeping so well. In prison, about to die, out cold. Like, if this is it... <laughs> I'm good. I've had my run. You know what I mean? And he's just sleeping in such peace. And he's so asleep, it says the angel had to strike him and get him up and leave. And we know that one. That one's awesome. And the angel opens all the doors, and then he gets to the church that's praying. He knocks on the door, and the woman opens the door. It's like, ah! She lets the door and runs. She goes back, and she's like, Peter's here. And they're like, there's no way it's Peter. It's his angel. So wait a second. You can believe it's Peter's angel that looks just like him. But you can't believe it's Peter that you're praying for. I don't, I'm confused. Well, there's another really incredible story where they, I think it's Peter and another one. I don't know. I'm pretty sure it's two of them. They're in prison. And the church begins to pray. And it says, and the angels go get them out of prison. And tell them, go to the place you got arrested and start preaching again. So they do it. Well, while they're doing that, the Sanhedrin sends guards to go get them out of prison. And when they go, they come back and they say, um... <laughs> They ain't there. The doors are locked. The guards are still in place. Nobody's seen anything, but they're not there. So in other words, they were translated, transported from in prison to the temple. And they figured, we're here, let's preach. And they start declaring the gospel. And the Sanhedrin arrests them, takes them back to prison. It's a, it's a, it's a crazy story. Prayer. Prayer. These guys were so driven by prayer. We see constantly where Paul goes on the rooftop to pray. He excludes himself to pray. They pray to pick the disciple. They pray to go to the next city. They pray to figure out what move they're going to make. Everything they do. 
You know what we're going to do? I don't know what we're going to do after this, but I know what we're going to do right now, and we're going to pray. We're, we're not going to go in and try to have a bunch of really exciting services right now. We're just going to pray. Because, you see, they didn't have the luxury of having a jacked-up service. Because every time they had a jacked-up service, guards rushed in and beat them unmercifully and drug them into prison. So sometimes they said, we're going to sneak into a dark hole, and we're going to have communion, and we're going to pray. And when they did, the face of the earth began to turn upside down. Every city began to be impacted. They began to have such an impact on the culture, on the nation, on the world because of these non-negotiables. When these become negotiable, we lose our impact. So if we're disturbed by the lack of influence we currently have in our own culture, these are why. When gathering together becomes negotiable, you just lost your impact. You just lost your ability to have influence. Why? Because these were the ways of the master. And the master said, these are what's going to build my church. These are the things. Later on down it says, Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they sold their possessions and good and divided them among all as anyone had need. I wrote down as a fifth one, they were a gratuitous company. And I wrote it that way because gratuitous means giving freely, spontaneously. I love this. Literally, if you read on in Acts, it says it came to the point where no one in the church had a need. Looking in this room right now and you think, wow, no one had a need, that's, that's pretty cool. No, you missed the first part where thousands were added every day. Thousands added to church daily and no one had a need. No one had a need because every time someone in the community caught wind of someone needing something, they'd be like, oh, I'll sell what I got and I'll make sure you don't go without. They were willing to give up land and possessions and whatever it was. And they would bring it to the apostles and say, find somebody that needs it. Find somebody that needs it. We, we, we don't push paying your tithes because we need it. I'm just going to be bold, and I'm going to tell you, we don't need your tithes. My God is way bigger than the little 10% you put in here every time. But you need the non-negotiable of bringing what you have to the body. Bringing it to, I'm, I'm going to really get out there now. Bringing it to the apostle and saying, find somebody that needs something. It literally says they came and laid it at the apostles' feet. And the apostles would start directing people, hey, get a hold of so-and-so because I heard they need this. And go find out from this widow over here what she needs. And, and finances were just going and things were coming. And no one had a need. Why? Because it was non-negotiable. They figured if Jesus was willing to go through the extent to feel my need, what need could I not try to feel? Come on, you have to remember, all of it goes back to the master. And if he would lay down his very life, so what if I have to sell one stupid material thing so I can help someone else? What if I have to drive something a little less nicer or live in a little bit smaller house? If I get to invest into my community and I get to give into a situation, and it becomes a driving force, not because the pastor said, you need to pay your tithes, but because when I look at the master... All of a sudden, it becomes non-negotiable. And you may can afford not to pay your tithes, but I can't afford not to. Because I'm after something way bigger than that 10%. Oh, come on. 
They were after something that would turn the world upside down. They were after something that would, that would bring revival and would impact nations, would raise the dead and heal the sick. And we're worried about 10%. It literally says one guy sold every bit of land he owned and brought it in and said, hey, people need stuff. Give it to them. Invest into them. Feel the needs. They even, I think they changed his name, didn't they? Ain't that what the scripture says? Or his name already meant that, which, yay God. You see what I'm saying? These guys were so committed. They were so committed. That's one of the things I love about this family. I feel like we've been pretty, pretty awesome in this area. I mean, I feel like there's always areas where we're looking to improve and grow, but, but the opportunities we've been involved in to give into our community on levels that would probably blow your mind to invest in areas, to, 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 to give people a car and, and, and give into people's lives. There's been so many things. And when I see it, I'm not thinking, oh, wow, that's really cool. I'm thinking, hey, this sounds like, this sounds like what changed the world. They didn't, none of their non-negotiables were set up to establish a local establishment establish a local that you like that none of them were set up to establish a local entity that met regularly everything was non-negotiable and established to create a family that changed the world they weren't fighting for their regular sunday morning meetings they were fighting and establishing things to change the world it, it wasn't, see, the problem is when the government came in and said, y'all don't need to be having church right now, most of us didn't get angry or upset about it. None of it had to do with this. It had to do with the fact you don't like being told what to do. And so your anger was so misplaced, you couldn't even receive the benefit if you would have done it anyway because of where you were doing it from. But see, there was a... Ch- <laughs> Ah, how do I get this across? There was a thing that was in them that was so established by the way the master did it that they were willing to risk their lives not to fight for their religious entity, to fight for changing the world. Don't mouth at the government for stopping you if when they remove their hand, you do nothing. We, we, we have to get out of this place. It would be one thing if we were wreaking havoc on the darkness in our community and we were turning everything upside down and they were saying things like the world's not worthy of. Then we have the right to be mad at the government when they slap us on the wrist. But when we're doing nothing already and they say, you can't meet on Sundays. For one, for one most of us didn't get upset. We just stayed home. And we just were okay with it. But on the other hand, what changed because we weren't here? These are the questions I've been asking myself. What did it do to my community when this happened? Did they even know anything changed? Did they even experience any difference under this, I'm not even going to call it opposition or oppression, because we don't even know what that is yet. What I'm telling you is they were establishing these non-negotiables when their life could be at risk for it. They were setting up something under the greatest pressure and opposition ever. And we have a hard time adapting when someone removes one of our luxuries. 
we could come in on a Sunday morning and strip away all the luxuries, all the comforts, all the props. And in doing so, an average Christian, we don't know how to adapt to make sure that our non-negotiables stay in place. We, we get too flustered and we get too bent out of shape because this isn't the way we normally do it. And, and, and what about this? And what about they were waking up every day not knowing where they were going to go and not knowing what they may be able to eat and not knowing if it would cost them their lives and yet they remained steadfast in the non-negotiables that were established by their master. When, when a lot of times what we're actually fighting for is the luxury of our preference and they didn't have that luxury I've been so convicted and so challenged as I've studied into this New Testament church to me if you read about the power they operated in and you're not convicted then you're not connected to what the spirit is saying we should already be convicted by the fact that we don't operate in the power that they operated in but when you take it on back and start realizing we don't operate in a lot of the things they operated in. We don't put the high enough value on fellowship and communion and prayer and all these things, these non-negotiables. They're not up here for us. They're somewhere in here. And if I have time left over, I'll, I'll, I'll go after these things. I, I'm not sure how far I can push this. I don't want this to come across like I'm shooting at anyone or anything. I'm just trying to, to let you into a moment and the conviction that Holy Spirit has been bringing into my life. Because I've noticed when it's a popular topic that gives me some Christian credibility, I tend to fight harder. In other words... If we had a situation come up in our community and it involved homosexuality, we'd be real vocal. Why? Because it looks good on your Facebook. It looks good to be the one that stands up and says, we're against homosexuality. We're against, and we're against these hot topic issues. And it looks good and it feels good. But we don't actually legally have the permission to be vocal on hot topic credible issues if these are not non-negotiable. Don't come to me or to anyone with the idea that you're going to fight racism and you're going to fight homosexuality if going to church is negotiable. You have no platform to fight from. Y'all see where I'm coming from? These are the shots Holy Spirit has been taking at me. Because I'm the type, especially when racism comes up, I'm, let's go toe to toe. Like, let's, let's roll. I'm ready to fight for this thing. And then he pulled me back and he said, that's real good and I love that. Because no one hates racism more than God. Okay? Yes, God hates it. He hates everything about it. But you know what else he hates? He hates when my non-negotiables become negotiable. He hates when all of a sudden I have to decide, am I going to commit to this or not? And so our vain outward bursts against racism and homosexuality and all these hot topic issues, all our religious outbursts are just that. They're vain. 
They're vain because they're not built on these non-negotiables. This is where he's bringing us back to, church. I believe he was telling me, if you want the day of Pentecost to become for you what it was for them, then you're going to have to have the same non-negotiables that they had. And these were things they gave their life for. So I want to ask you this as we're getting ready to close. It's almost 8 o'clock. I want to ask you some questions that Holy Spirit asked me, and I want you to just think about them for a minute. And I want you to try to be honest, and I don't want you to answer out loud, because most of them, if you answered them out loud, we would applaud you. But I'm not here to applaud you. I'm here for the Holy Spirit to check your heart, okay? If we legit entered into a time, I said a while ago, it scares me how easy it was for most Christians to lay down gathering together. If we were to enter into a time before we know it where our government officially outlawed your life included, you gathering and coming to church, would you do it? I know right off the cuff, your religious side even wants to say, well, yeah, I'd do it. Why? Because you'd look like a hero? But are we doing it because it was the way of the master and if my life was on the line, I would still fight to be with you? It's not about being saved. So you can't even approach it from, if I do it, God will be pleased. Because you're saved and born again, but there was a non-negotiable of gathering together. Are we willing to risk everything for that? Are you willing to let them come in and take your job, take your income, take all of your luxuries, all of your comforts? Would you sacrifice all those things to hang out with the people that are sitting in this room? Would you do it if when you hung out, you didn't come here and have an incredible service, you went to someone's hidden room in the back of a house that you snuck into, that you're so packed in tight you can't even turn around, and you're sweating, one, because it's so hot. Did anybody go outside today? One, because it's so hot, and you're sweating, two, because what if somebody walks in and sees it? Are we at the level where it's not negotiable? It's not negotiable. I'm not giving that up. <laughs> I, I can't afford to give that up because that would be me giving up my impact to change the world. This is the level we're being called to. This is the arena we've asked him to put us in. If you prayed that you would experience the same Pentecost they experienced, this is what you asked for. Have you ever made the mistake of praying for patience? Guess what happened when you prayed for Pentecost? This. This is what comes. The first thing they experienced when they left the upper room, 3,000 get added, the first thing they experienced was, if you preach that again, I'll cut your head off. Not, you might get sick, don't go to church. I'm sorry. That was a low, that was a low shot. It was, if you preach that, I'll kill you. I'll hang you on the side of the road and light you on fire. That's what they were doing to them. And guess what they said? <laughs> I'm sorry, bro, but it's not negotiable. I, I'm sorry. I, I get where you're coming from, but me not going to be with them, that's, that's just not negotiable. I can't, I can't not do that. If I pray... You'll throw me in a den of lines? I'm sorry. It's, it's just not negotiable. 
It, that's, not all, that's not one of the things I'm willing to lay down. I'm sorry. Man. I want to live a life that's so consumed with the way of the master that these become non-negotiable. And it's in that way of life that changes the world. I want to read one scripture and we're going to leave it with that. We got three minutes. I'm doing it, Dad. I'm bringing it out. I'm going to read you Acts chapter 2. I think it's 2. Verse 31, or 3 and 21. Out of the Passion Translation, you don't have to go there. I'm just going to read it to you real quick, and I'm going to leave you with this, okay? Acts 3 and 21 says about Jesus. This is when Peter's preaching his message. He must remain in heaven until the restoration of all things has taken place. Fulfilling everything that God said long ago. Jesus must remain in heaven until the restoration of all things. So guess what that means? That means that restoration is on us. Because he's going to stay in heaven until all those things are restored. Well, if he's in heaven, who's doing the restoring? The body of Christ. Why do these become non-negotiables? Because my job here is to restore all things back to the way he needed it. And you know what? I want to be with him so bad, I want to start restoring some things. So all of a sudden, he'll start saying, you know what? It looks so much down there like it does up here. I think I'm just going to head on down there with them. Come on, I want to challenge you in this area. He said, until all things are restored. That word there is actually apocatastasis, which means restored back to perfect health. Can I, can I tell you, this earth is in bad health. And guess who's called to restore it? We are. But as long, I got one minute, watch this. As long as any of these things are negotiable, you are disqualified from restoring things back to the way he's coming back to get them. He's coming back for a bride that is without spot, wrinkle, or blemish. That sounds like restoration to me. Guess who does the restoration? We do. Through the non-negotiables that were established in his way of life that changed the world. Are you ready to change the world? Or are you just happy with Sunday morning service? Because I'm ready to have an impact. Father, I thank you for the conviction. I thank you that you're calling us into an area, into an arena. I thank you that you have answered our prayer for Pentecost. And you have invited us to an arena that we have never been in before. And it's going to cost more. And it's going to take more. And it's going to require more. But we will remain non-negotiable on the ways of the master. And in it, we will find ourselves in a lifestyle that's restoring the planet to perfect health. I Thank you for it, Father. In Jesus' name, the whole family said, Amen. We love you guys, and we'll see you Sunday morning. Thank you for listening to Life Church Podcast. For more information, go to lifechurchofcolumbia.org.